0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Bill's lesson today is in Luke chapter 15, titled, The Heart of God, Part 1. Hello, good morning. Everybody doing okay? We're in the book of Luke, working our way through that critical document, the history of Jesus according to Luke. And uh, what a blessing it has been. And we're going to continue to do that. We're in Luke chapter 15, and we're graduating out of chapter 14 and moving on and uh, what a graduation it is we finally get a break Uh, stuff up until this point and especially from chapter 9 on has been really hard-hitting some of the hardest teachings of Jesus we find here in these passages we've been in the past three chapters uh, words like this unless you hate your father and mother you cannot be my disciple wow that's tough that's hard passages Uh, uh Fear the one who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Tough stuff. Anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. The way to heaven is narrow, and many will try and fail to go, Jesus says. Tough words. Really are. And we're going to leave now by by the will of the holy spirit we're now leaving that progressive narrative of jesus last three months of ministry basically from chapter nine on you're really looking at about three and a half months from the from chapter nine until the time of his crucifixion so it's a lot of information but it's stuff that jesus taught constantly throughout his ministry but we're getting just a kind of a broad picture of that interjected here now luke is going to interject some of jesus's uh, that are not necessarily chronological. So these are teachings that Jesus would have taught consistently in the three-year ministry. He's teaching every day. He's with a different crowd. He's literally speaking to thousands and thousands of people at different times. And so you find a lot of Jesus' teachings are repeated throughout the Gospels. And there's changes in the way he does it in the way Matthew teaches, the way Matt, Mark and where Luke records it. And a lot of that's got to do with the fact that he taught these multiple times. He didn't say the exact same words every single time. Same message, but not the exact same words. And so we have, though, here unique parables here in chapter 3 that are such a, a, a needed break, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, parables, uh, like I said, not necessarily chronological. And Luke picks this spot in the heart of his gospel to stress to us the heart of God. So we've been in this mantra of really hard teachings that Jesus has been given is 100% true. We have to understand them. We have to go through them. And sometimes it's a grind uh, go every Sunday to get hit over the head. Yeah, well, that's just, you know, whatever's the next verse, and that's just what we do. But uh, when we come to a place like this where we're going to get a break and it's almost like a, 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 uh, an oasis, if you will, uh, that we find. And so Luke picks the spot here in the middle of, the, of his gospel to stress the heart of God. So many different points to make, right? So many different themes in the scriptures. What are the most important ones? Is there a hierarchy? Is there one central point? being made. And if it is, if there is, what is it? And if we can know what that main central point is, what is ultimately God after? What is the whole theme of scripture? Uh, What is nearest and dearest to the heart of God? Because once we have that, then we have something that we can build everything else on. Otherwise, uh, it feels like in some cases we're chasing rabbits. And so what is the heart of of the gospel? What is the heart of the truth of what God is after? Actually, the heart is what you're going to find here in chapter 15 but it's expressed probably none better and none, none shorter and sweeter than Luke chapter 19 on the screen there for you, verse 10. So here's Jesus. It's the theme of all Scripture, Jesus is. He's the focus of the Father. He's the Savior of the world. He's God's one and only Son. And He's going to congeal for you in one short sentence the whole reason why He came. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He is not doing anything else. I mean, yeah, he's healing, and yes, he's teaching, and yes, he's setting a good example, and, and yes, he is rebuking, and yes, he's coming down hard on, on Pharisees and false teachers and all this stuff, but it's all for one single purpose. He is not doing anything else. It's the whole purpose of him coming. And it, it is, in a short sentence, the summation of what we're going to have here in chapter 15 in these uh, three Uh, in these three parables so why did jesus come why was he virgin born why did he heal why did he do miracles why did he teach such incredible things Uh, why was he so black and white about god and about heaven and about salvation and about sin because of what he was here to do he had one purpose and one goal and everything else was a means to that end so everything you see in the scriptures especially the ministry of jesus is a means to this end. He's accomplishing this. He served one single goal. It was God has a single goal. His son has the same single goal. So do you have a single goal for life? Well, life's too complicated for you. Well, it wasn't for God. May, May I suggest to you that if the single goal you have for your life differs from the single goal that God has for his son, that you might want to rethink, as a Christian, what you're doing. So, so Jesus had a single goal, but you're way more important than that? <laughs> you, you've got, I don't know, intellectual uh, uh, capabilities outside of that? No, no, you don't. You don't. Not another purpose outside of that. To seek and to save that which was lost. That Jesus' entire ministry sum up in one sentence. So Jesus sums his ministry up in one sentence, and the theme of the whole Bible is Jesus. So we have not only the whole purpose of Jesus coming to the earth, but also the whole purpose of the scriptures sum, summarized in one sentence so we can simply a- answer the question, what is God up to today? That. He's not doing anything else. Everything that he's allowing today, and I mean, you have problems with the world and we have problems with leadership and we have problems with elections and all these other things. We have problems with this and problems with that and these issues going on in the world. And Why does God do that? Well, a very simple answer is, He's pushing everyone in the direction so that he can save them. That's what he's doing. What what is he doing in your life currently? Stuff you like, stuff you don't like, all of it. Life is real short. All of it is to push you in the direction so that you will accept him to be your savior. He's not doing anything else. That's all he's doing. That's all he's doing. I'm not saying he won't help you with the finances, I'm not saying he won't help you with the marriage. I'm not saying he won't help us with our country. I'm just simply saying all those things he does is for one purpose. This is what he's doing. He's not doing anything else. Single goal and purpose, and it's going to be clearly very beautifully illustrated by these uh, wonderful, incredible, probably some of the best-known parables, maybe some of the best-known teachings in the entire Bible. It's a trilogy. Jesus is going to say in response to uh, a... a problem, he constantly has problems with the Pharisees and the scribes, a problem that he has with them, in response to their attitude and their heart, he's going to give us a trilogy of lessons on the heart of God. So that's where you are. Here's where God is. And he gives us, like I said, this this trilogy. A, A shepherd searching for a lost sheep, and when he finds it, he rejoices. A woman searching for a lost coin, and when she finds it, she rejoices. A father who's lost his son, wanting his son to come home. And when he does, he rejoices. It's the story of the heart of God. What is God up to? How does he really feel about the world and, and what really matters and what, what do we do with all these hard teachings? Well, the end result is God is really seeking us to save us and rescue us. These, these parables, as do the rest of Scripture, exist for only one reason, so that you and I can know who God is. That's the most important thing you can possibly accomplish in this life, to know God is and that's the reason why he's given us the Bible so that we can know who he is and and then when he congeals it down to a single sentence now we know his heart what is this all about you read stuff in there and it's like really confusing in some cases what is he really into this is it he's not doing anything else they exist for the sole purpose of knowing who God is and it's very simple he's seeking and saving that which was lost and so we have this parable of the recovery of the sheep and so We start with the story here in uh, chapter, uh, well, the background to the story in chapter 15. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him, coming near to Jesus. Why? Because he was open arms to them. I love you. I want to be near you. Totally, completely opposite than the religious leadership of the day. Sinners, quote unquote, they called them." coming near him and listening to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he begins to tell them this parable. Nothing more clearly illustrates, other than the fact that they kill him eventually, how far they are from the heart of God, than the way they respond. So the very people that they're doing their best to have nothing to do with, they wouldn't talk to them, they wouldn't touch them, They wouldn't even look at them. Jesus' wide open arms. Nothing more better demonstrates how far their heart is from the heart of God, like I said, other than crucifying him, than their attitude toward these people. They were utterly out of touch with God because, by nature, God is a Savior. That's what he's doing. What is God up to? He's saving people. He's not doing anything else. He's not doing anything else. So he, he, he changes your finances. You're still going to die and go to hell. What good has he done? He heals you. Awesome, that's great. I'm all about healing. Let's pray that God will help you with your finances and your healing and your marriage. But you're still going to die and go to hell if that's all that happens to you. So, so if, there's not, if that's the end and there's nothing else, then what has he really done? He's given us a little bit of comfort for an eternity without comfort. It's not a very good exchange. No, God loves us. And yes, he does do those things. But it's always a means to an end. And that end is to save us. To save the lost. He's seeking and saving that which was lost. So they were utterly out of touch with the heart of God. And a lot of people struggle with this whole... How many... Anybody here have a bunch of kids? I see some. We, you, we had kids. and we, it, There's some over here too. They're all over the place. Anybody struggle? Wife and husband? Did y'all struggle with naming your kids? Well, you know disagreement we had we had some disagreements and I won I think didn't I <laughs> I, th- I do believe it played out that way so one one to a hundred so I won chalk one up she usually wins she's smarter but so so struggle with naming kids because you know do you name them after your relatives do you name them after there's some all our kids are named after bible characters I think you can't go wrong with that uh, there's some Bible characters I wouldn't recommend, but anyway, there's, there's some that, uh, the ones we did, I, were, were good, great people. But, but do you name after your relatives? Do you rank them? Because the, the name sounds cool. It's a trendy thing. We've got a lot of trendy. You watch the trends, you know, in, in the families and the names and stuff like that. It's kind of crazy. Uh, uh, it sounds really good. You've got these names that just have, they have absolutely no meaning whatsoever. They just have this kind of strange sound to them because, well, it sticks in people's ears, and I guess maybe that matters. Uh, what, what, what would you do? If you were God, you just have one son. He's only going to come once. And his whole purpose, everything that he is, is to express who you are. Jesus is not doing anything else. He is not doing anything else other than expressing the heart of God. What do you name that child? you going to struggle for a name. He can't be, I don't know, Jack or something or Bill what do you, you just throw some random name out there, hope people remember him. No, what, what do you name this child? So, so you understand, it isn't a random name when the angel says to Joseph these things about Mary, betrothed to Mary him. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Not a nickname, not a middle name. For why? He will save his people from their sins now we hear the word jesus and we think of either you know jesus martinez down here selling the tacos or we think of just a name because it doesn't really mean anything The meanings don't mean a lot to us when they heard the word jesus they're hearing a meaning that meaning is the very definition it gives us there he will save that's what it means god is savior so what does he name his son his whole heart he's not doing anything else he doesn't name him healer Doesn't name him, I don't know, financial advisor. Doesn't name him miracle worker. Names him savior, because that is all that God ultimately is doing. He's not doing anything else. Lots of things he does, but you can be certain of this. It is always a means to an end. God sends his one and only son, because why? He has only one purpose. Again, Jesus making this great statement in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the whole world... His whole heart, he loves all of them. Let me ask you this. Since God knows everything and has always known everything, does God not also know everyone who's going to be saved and not going to be saved? We've talked about this before. And when did he learn that? Never. Because God doesn't learn. So he's always known that the whole world wasn't going to be saved. So why waste your emotions on the knuckleheads out there who aren't coming to Jesus? Why not just love? You know, the ones he already knew. Because that's not the heart of God. So yeah, he knows. But it doesn't mean he doesn't cry. So, so how close are we to the heart of God? See, we, we talk, we wanna, we're going to talk about these Pharisees. We're going to come down hard on them. They're far from the heart of God. And I hope we're far closer to the heart of God. But how close are we? Really. God so loved the world... That he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to, to judge the world, but that the world might be, there's the word, saved through him. Single purpose. Single goal. Heart of God. Rescuing people. Our God is a relentless Savior who weeps over the loss. How are you doing with that? Is that your attitude toward the loss? Sometimes I find myself saying, well, you know, they made a bad decision. See you later. Can't get too emotionally involved with that. Half the people I talk to don't want anything to do with my Savior. Somebody's like, I'm moving on. Too bad for you. Hell's going to be hot. You know, that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God. How how close are we? How close am I? To the heart of God. Because God weeps over the loss. Uh, again, here, here he is, even though he knows, right? The good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of our God. How close are you to the heart of God? How close are we to the heart of God? The religious establishment wanted nothing to do with those who God wanted everything to do with. It's amazing, isn't it? They're reading the Bible. They're memorizing it. Didn't do them of good. They did not mix it with faith. They did not mix it with a relationship with God. And so you can have the whole scriptures and completely misinterpret them, which is exactly what they did. So Jesus begins to work on them. We haven't even gotten to the parable yet. Here we go. Jesus begins to work on them. He says after their response, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus says, tells them this parable. It's like I said, it's going to be a trilogy. We're only going to do one today. What man among you? So he draws them in right there. Surely there's not a man here that wouldn't do this, or a woman. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, has lost one of them, and does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? Now, now we we don't read this necessarily the the way they would have heard it, because they would have immediately been, because we're not Middle Easterners, and we're not Jews of the first century, they would have immediately been offended by the statement that Jesus makes here, the question. Because he's talking to the elite, Pharisees and the scribes. These are guys who work in offices every single day. Their hands don't get dirty. They're never out in the fields. Their, their feet are clean all the time. They're, they, they do and they live in very posh, very rich, very ornate type of situations. So he insinuates that they could be shepherds, which, by the way, is one of the lowest rungs in their culture. So they were considered the highest wrong. The shepherd was just right below the worst you could possibly be. Better to be a garbage handler than a shepherd. Better to be a fisherman, even though they were not very high, than a shepherd. Shepherds were way down there. What man among you if he has... So they would have firstly said, what, what does he mean? I don't tend sheep. I don't, I have pe- we have people that tend our sheep for us. They're, they're all, you know, who, who is he talking to? Does he not know? Does he not know who I am? You know, kind of, kind of thing. Jesus begins to work on them, and he begins to push them, and they, they're pushed. Uh, sheep herding, like I said, was considered the lowest profession in society. We don't tend sheep. Yeah, but they every way, in every way, depended upon sheep. Every Sabbath, they ate sheep. Every piece of clothing they had on, unless it was made of Egyptian cotton, was extremely rare was made out of wool from their sheep. Every man that he was talking to here would have owned sheep, probably hundreds of sheep. But they don't dirty their hands. They have people that do this for them. And so for Jesus to insinuate that they would themselves go looking for the sheep or tend the sheep is automatically an offense to them. Reminds me, by the way, this this snobbery kind of thing. reminds me. And I'm not going to have a raise of hands. But I've I've, I've been snobbed recently. So I'm going to vent. A person driving an electric car. I'm not talking about a golf cart, even though we've got a lot of those. Kind of got snobby. And because she insinuated that somehow she was protecting the planet by driving an electric car and the fact that I was driving a hybrid, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm into saving the, you know, the polar bears because I want a shot at them, too. I mean, I want to see them, too. <laughs> So she kind of got snobby, and you've you've seen this, right? Well, we drive electric cars because we're not contributing to greenhouse gases because we're not burning fossil fuels. But there is an ignorance in that snobbery because most of the electricity produced in the world is produced by burning fossil fuels. So they just let somebody else burn it for them. And that makes them better somehow than, you know. Anyway. The same level of snobbery is here. We don't tend sheep. Now, someone else tends the sheep for them. They're totally dependent upon the sheep. Just like we are, you know, fossil fuels. They're, they're totally dependent upon the sheep. They love the sheep because the sheep make them money. The sheep put clothes on their back. The, the, the sheep feed them and their kids and their families. But they themselves, there's a, there's a level of separation. So Jesus is offending them. And he knows that, by the way. So, so he makes a statement here in verse 4. What man among you, this is what's called axiomatic. In other words, of course you would. What man among you wouldn't do this? None. If it if, if it wasn't someone tending my sheep, then I would definitely do this because this is, you have to understand, for them, so so if I start with hundred and I end up with ninety-nine, is that bad? So I can either make a hundred on a test or make a ninety-nine? What's the difference? What's an A plus? But if we think along those levels, then you won't think along the way they're thinking. They're thinking more of in a business sense. So 1% of your property is missing this afternoon. Are you not going to check that out? Of course you would. 1% of your business declined in a single day, in a single hour. Would you not go research that? Are you just going to let it go? Because 99 is not, not as good as 100, but who really cares, right? No, maybe it'll be 98 next time, or 97, or 95. You better get on it. So so when 1% of their business comes up missing, they go and look. Of course they would. Of course. He sucks them right in. This is the story they would have been, uh, it would have been of, why are you saying this to us? Of course we would. So so they're they're very dependent upon sheep. Sheep brought continual dividends to them. Wool several times a year to make clothing with. You see, we, we are so blessed with our clothing. Wool Clothing means a lot less to us than it did to them. And I'm all appreciative of all y'all wearing clothes to church. I appreciate that 100%. I'm not saying you don't appreciate clothes. I'm just saying you don't appreciate clothes the way they did. Because for you, if you want to buy a dress, ladies, or gentlemen, you want to buy a shirt, Walmart's 10 minutes from here, and you can be back in 15. How long do you have to prepare for that? Not very long, and then there's a mall, in, in Walmart, or you can go on to Amazon and get here in three days. Or two. Or if you live in Austin, one day, right? Isn't that cool? A couple hours, isn't that awesome? I mean, we ordered stuff for our kids. That all three of our kids live in Austin. I didn't tell you that. And boom, it was there the same day. It's like, wow. Not a reason to leave Austin, though. <laughs> not a reason. Anyway. Anyway, so, so, so for us, when I'm thinking about a change of clothes, I'm thinking of a shirt. I just got to plan 15 minutes out, or not even that. Or I happen to be, oh, I forgot. I need to buy a shirt. I'll come by Walmart and go in there and get it. I can buy shirts at H-E-B. Any place on the island, they sell clothes. They don't have to think about it. For them, it was a year planning to get a shirt. So I got my sheep has to have a baby. And the baby's got to grow. And I've got to take care of it. And I've got to worm it and dip it and vaccinate it. And I've got to make sure it's good. And I've got to feed it. And I've got to care for it. And if it's injured, it lives in the house with me. Because why? This sheep is my shirt. And then when it gets big enough and gets wool, I'm able to shear it, and then my wife or somebody makes it, because I'm no good, makes a shirt for me, and I get to put it on, and I'm a year out. A year. See, we don't appreciate clothes the way they did. How many here, no raise of hands, have at least 30 changes of clothes at home right now? Almost every person sitting here has 30 Changes the clothes. These these boys right here. Don't don't point don't point us out, Pastor Bill. <laughs> Go to camp with these boys right here. They change they change clothes like four times a day at camp. <laughs> because they could. They're you know, they might meet a honey there at camp, you know, you don't want to smell bad. So it's, we're we're so clothing is so so unimportant to us. You understand a person with 30 changes of clothes, only kings and queens in this age, had that many. Very different life than you have. It's very different. So, so a sheep for them is an investment. You don't let it go. That's my shirt. I'm going to go find it. What time is it? I don't care. The sheep are, the rest are in the field, and I'm going to find the single sheep, because one percent of my business matters. It matters. So I had to have a plan if I care to wear clothes. Got to have a plan. It's got to be projected at least a year out. Got to have a plan. These, these sheep were their lives. They would risk their lives to get them because they had placed so much of their lives into them. So it's very different. My, my father-in-law was a watermelon farmer and a fireman, and he would raise, He had a couple cows, and uh, they would raise, uh, when, I got, when I married in the family, he had one, what was her name? Bingo who had already had 16 calves, she continued to live in, I don't know how many calves a cow can have, that's a lot of calves. But they would raise these calves, and of course the calves were for a single purpose, to go into the freezer because we want to eat steak and ribs and other things. But the problem that it was, is that Bingo and her calves, my mother-in-law would make, would hand feed. She literally, truly made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and fed it to them. Bingo, I don't know how old she was 20 something year old 16 calves didn't hardly have a tooth in her head Didn't need one because she ate leftover watermelons and burnt peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all year. She had a great life So one more calf didn't matter, but when it came time to kill the calves guess what mom-in-law wouldn't like father-in-law Kill this calf and put it in the freezer. He had to sell this calf and buy somebody else's calf and then they ate that calf, because this calf was, it was family. She had a name for all of them. And she understood, I mean, they got to go, but, but we're not going to have them in the freezer, we're not going to look at the wrapper every time and think, there's bingo, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> not going to do it. Of course they would go find these sheep. These sheep were part of their lives. They had invested in these sheep. They would risk their lives to go get them. In addition, like I said to the kids earlier, when a sheep got lost, a sheep can't defend themselves, and they're not very smart. And when they get lost, they don't, it's not like they, they wake up the next day thinking, I've got to find water and I've got to find my way home. No, they give up. Poof, you know anything about sheep? You know, they just quit. They will lay down right there and, until something finds them and kills them and eats them, or until the shepherd comes, or, or they just simply die of exposure. That's the way sheep are. And so you're thinking about, this is the sheep I've invested so much in. There's a part of my heart with this sheep. I'm going to find that sheep. Of course they would. Like I said, it's axiomatic. They would have brought, been brought in by this story because it was so common to their lives. Which one of you, if you saw a glass on the edge of a table teetering over without, without thinking, would not stick your hand out there and stop it? it again, it's so axiomatic for them, they would not, not even thinking they would have done this. Of course you would. Of course. So so Jesus catches them with the story, and then he drives home the point here. So let's keep reading in verse five. When he has found it, again, of course, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Of course, of course he would. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." Of course he would. Of course a common thing for them they're not even thinking would they would they consider this to be true but what they have not understood and they would have never thought to be true is what he says in verse seven i tell you that in the same way there will be more joy now he's been teaching us about earthly things and earthy things he's going to immediately take them straight to heaven i tell you that in the same way there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Why? Because that's all that God's doing. He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd searching for his sheep. Remember the whole story, right? Here it is, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's not doing anything else. It, it's his whole purpose. Like I said, their whole lives were revolved were, were around these animals. So of course they would go look for them. And of course they would celebrate them. And they don't realize that God's whole life revolves yeah, around us. It's everything for him. It's everything. So the shepherd finds the sheep no matter what. And that's exactly what God's done for us. These people who they were so glad they had nothing to do with, they're going to go to heaven and these riffraff won't be with us anymore. Jesus is gathering them all in. Heaven's going to be a sad place for those people if they actually go. Shepherds also bore the entire risk and the price of finding the sheep. God's salvation is free to us. Costly. Very costly. Very costly for him. Here's Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Why? There's not another way. If they're to be rescued, and that's all he's here to do, there was not another way. So so it answers the why questions of why was he rejected and why did he suffer and why was he tortured and crucified and why was his blood spilled because there was not another way. The shepherd bears the entire burden, the entire responsibility. He takes the full risk. A sheep cannot do anything for itself. It's going to stay there and die or be devoured. And unless the shepherd intervenes and the shepherd, if he's going to be a shepherd, has to carry the full load he has to and the shepherd always found if they found the sheep always rejoice god loves sinners and they hated them how close are we to the heart of god god wanted everything to do with them and they wanted nothing to do with them how close are we to the heart of god god pays the price to bring them home and they wouldn't lift a finger to help them God rejoices over even one sinner who repents, and they're sitting there saying, he's saying, uh, Jesus says tongue-in-cheek, and you who need no repentance is total sarcasm. There is no such thing. There's not a person who doesn't need repentance. And so if you think, if you're a person, I don't need God to save me, well then, yeah, well, God's not for you then. Because that's all he's doing. I need Jesus to be an advisor, but not a savior. I'm telling you, he doesn't do anything else. If he's given advice, it's so that you will be saved. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't have another purpose. He's not accomplishing anything else. That's his whole purpose because it's the only thing that ultimately matters. How is it that we claim to know God, and yet we can be so far from his heart? It's a good question. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we think about those very things. You know, unlike, unlike the shepherd of Jesus' story, Jesus, the shepherd, is not unaware of where all of his sheep are. It's not that Jesus looks out on the world and says, where are all these lost people? No, he knows exactly where every one of them are. Unlike the sheep who had no say over whether he was rescued by the shepherd, we have a say. It's not that the shepherd doesn't know where you are, ma'am, sir. But will you let yourself be found? I don't need a Savior. Well, then Jesus isn't for you. Because he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Would you be willing to say, because of your sin, I'm a lost person? And I need to be saved? That's all Jesus is doing. To seek and to save that which was lost, he's waiting for that lost person to say to him, I want to be found. I want to be rescued. Have you said that to him? It's not a religious thing. It's not a church thing. It's a savior thing. It's a relationship with a real savior who's come to do nothing other than rescue us. God, I thank you that you have done that. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for searching for us. Thank you for carrying the whole weight. And thank you for that incredible notion that you celebrate us when we're found. Bless these words in our ears and hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.